I'm Crystal Siracas. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Marjorie Hudson. Her new book is Indigo Field. Said in a small town in North Carolina, it's a sweeping southern epic of family, betrayals, death, and ghosts, both literal and metaphorical. The writing is lush, with almost poem-like descriptions of the natural world and a host of characters that are drawn to each other through forces they don't understand. Marjorie joins me today from her home in North Carolina. Marjorie, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's great to be here, Crystal. Thank you. I was trying to figure out how to do my quick summation of the book, and it's just, there's so much going on. So I'm going to make you do that. Tell us a little bit (laughs) about your book. Yeah, it's actually really hard to do. It is very complex. Um, and the best way to say it, I think, is it's about a community in the rural south where three people live in proximity to an abandoned field, you know, the kind of field that you might see driving around. It has kind of a ramshackle fence and broom sedge and so on. And um, the two, let's see, two of them, Jolene and Miss Reba, are longtime neighbors who have small farms close by. And uh, Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee is a newcomer. He's just moved here. Um, he's a retiree. He's moved to the new development across the highway. But they were all truly strangers to each other, and they're separated by race, class, culture, history. And they each use the field for different things. One for winter goat pasture, that's Jolene. Um, Miss Reba uses it for gathering herbs and memories. And the colonel uses it as an escape from the retirement village that he thinks is way too pretentious. So, um, And each of the characters also has a young man in their life who has some growing up to do. Uh, And each of them has a kind of brokenness. Um, an isolation that they're struggling with. And it took me a while to realize this, but over the course of the novel, the field brings them together. Another, a few other things, the field hides many secrets, including the family history of Miss Reba Jones, the elderly black woman who hides her Tuscarora heritage under black skin. And Miss Reba knows where all the bodies are buried, literally. and I've wanted to tell a big Southern story about heritage and secrets, about ignorance, about history, and how the past is never really dead, you know. And I wanted to write about community. I uh, wanted to answer a question that had been bothering me. Can people really come together across boundaries in the South? Um, and this is an area of interest for me because I'm a community organizer as well as a writer. So um, I have been witnessing all these things. So it's really about three people on a field. Way better than I could have done. Oh, (laughs) I'm not (laughs) sure. I'm not sure I quite got it right, but there's more to say, I know. Well, it's always so hard when you're putting a blurb together, you know, that people can see when they're looking at the book or reading the back copy because, and I was just thinking of that because the story is so very, very complicated and layered and gorgeous. Several of your characters were actually born in other stories, which are included in the collection Accidental Birds of the Carolinas. What brought you back to them? 
Yes, well, a little writer's secret I can tell you. Um, I always wanted to write about them in a novel, and the uh, story collection just got put together before I could figure out how to finish the novel. So I took pieces of the novel, and I know writers do this. They mine their novels for stories. I came back to them as I always wanted to. Jolene and Miss Reba were first published in Accidental Birds of the Carolinas um, in a novella about Jolene's growing up years. So she's about uh, 39 in the novel. And uh, in the novella, she starts out as a young child growing up on a farm. And she intersects with Miss Reba. Miss Reba shows up in that novella as her midwife, as a, a black woman who's um, a neighbor. He's a little bit of a cipher to Jolene and who um, helps birth her child, Bobo. And uh, that, I wrote a hundred page backstory for the novel. And I knew that that was, you know, about 10 years later is when the novel starts. So I did that thing that writers do where they make use of the material they've written that might not ever see the light of day. I reshaped um, that story for a novella. And then I also reshaped the first few chapters of the novel, which were introducing the colonel character, the retired colonel. Um, I reshaped that as a short story. So I did opposite land. A lot of times mm. people start with a short story and they they end up expanding to a novel. I started with a novel and then reshaped for a short story in order to get some work out there because it was taking so long to write this novel. How long did it take? Uh, first, very first idea for it was in 1993, so just about exactly 30 years. I know. Oh. Wow. A long time. A long time. And that is, you know, I've done other things in the meanwhile and, you know, had, had a number of really intense jobs. I write nonfiction and I uh, published a nonfiction book, uh, Searching for Virginia Dare and the story collection and um, uh, lots of published in anthologies and magazines and so on. So I was working all the while, but I, I had about 450 pages uh uh, in 1999 that I went to graduate school and I kept coming back. I wanted to see if I could do it because it was it was hard it was harder than I knew, you know That's a great mm -hmm. thing I think um, when a writer's facing the blank page they're they're like, hmm, I could do this and then, and then it becomes harder than you know, but you keep going because you're obsessed and that's just what you do. So, Right. Now, the, the Tuscarora tribe is very much at the heart of this story. So who were they and how did you get interested in their story? Yeah, wonderful question. Uh, the Tuscarora now living in upstate New York as part of the um, Confederacy of, of Iroquois tribes. Um, started out in North Carolina, and they were um, a big, powerful trading group, an Iroquoian language group. Um, 
among about 20 nations in North and South Carolina that uh, when explorers and English people first connected with this part of the world, uh, that was one of their very powerful tribes. I, I became just fascinated with the Tuscarora because of a story I read in an explorer's journal. John Lawson wrote A New Voyage to Carolina, and he wrote some stories about the Tuscarora and the 20 nations. And I uh, ended up turning some of that into a, sh a short story. But then I did some nonfiction. I did a nonfiction essay about this uh, material I was learning. And I went to the site of a Tuscarora village. There was a man who was an amateur archaeologist. And yes, people really shouldn't do this. But he had discovered what he thought was the home village of the Tuscarora people um, on Contentnia Creek. And I stood on that soil, and he told me some of the things he had found under the soil, um, mostly food items, you know, turtle shells, and surprisingly, peach pits. Peach pits were um, an indication that there had been peach orchards in this village, a gift of the Spanish, the first Spanish people who came, Native people borrowed the the idea of eating peaches. They fell in love with peaches. So all of these little mysteries were, were under my feet, and I became haunted by that. Also, I was living um, with uh, my new husband on his family farm, and there were indigenous artifacts found there for a hundred years. So my daily life and my research and writing life was haunted by Native people. And as a community organizer, community person, I also was meeting living Native Americans who were busy, you know, organizing and empowering themselves and regathering in lots and lots of ways. And all of that started to work on my mind. But the Tuscarora were a very powerful people. They were the people who finally rose up against English settlers um, in what's called the Tuscarora War, which expanded to South Carolina and the Yemassee War. And the reason that they rose up was because the settlers, the white settlers, were stealing their children and selling them into slavery in Barbados. That was the main reason. Another bit of history that I didn't know, and I think most people don't really know, the, 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 the most terrible thing about contact with English people. Yes, there was um, disease, smallpox, incursion on their lands, disagreements. Uh, but the Tuscarora said, okay, mm -mm, we're not having it. We're going to attack you this time. So uh, there was the attack on the city of New Bern, one of the first English and uh, European developments in North Carolina. And it, it was wiped out. And... Uh, mm -hmm the Tuscarora really kind of took took their revenge in that moment. It went badly for them after that. But that's what I know about them. They're just a fascinating people. And yes, there are still Tuscarora people in North Carolina. One of the things that I love so much about the book is that, you know, some of these stories are woven in there with different characters, but there is 
also a sense of mysticism. Well, not just with the Tuscarora people, but also with the Black community of that time. Talk a little bit about telling a story that interweaves so much of our history's own tragic history, which that with that degree of, of mysticism that I think gives a voice in many ways to to the dead. Yes, I I I think that history speaks to us, and it may not feel like a spirit for uh, you or me, but I think I I feel it. I sense it. I also am a little strange about trees. I talk to trees. I feel that they are talking to me. Um, and I, I tried to describe the style of the writing at one point. Um, and magical realism wasn't really quite right, but I decided mystical realism. So yeah, I think that's it. Um, I think that we're all haunted by the past, and usually it's by people that we know. Um, I feel like the South, uh, I guess um, Flannery O'Connor, I think, called it the Christ-haunted landscape. And, but it's haunted also by the history of Black and Indigenous people, the history of settlers, um, the things that are under our feet that we really don't talk about much because they're not pleasant and they're not present-day concerns for most people. However, I think they're, I think that the spirits of the past have, have more to say about what's going on in the present than we believe. You know, I, anywhere, anywhere in the South where there's been a lynching, there are people who remember that anywhere in the South where uh, Native people survived but kept their identity secret because of the double prejudice against Native people um, as people of color and as, and, as, and, and as Native Americans, that double prejudice um, was uh, destructive to, uh, to these people, and so they never spoke of it. But I think we can... There are many families who never spoke of their heritage, who maybe uh, you might grow up and learn about it later. Or, and so that there's a hauntedness about this secretiveness about the past. And um, I think, you know, what some of us are learning and paying attention to with things like the Equal Justice Initiative and the museum that features um, the history of lynching in, in my community, just recently, we have honored some of the victims of lynching. But all those things, you know, all of that blood in the soil is there, whether you talk about it or not. We've been very carefully not talking about it. And I wanted to say something about it. So, Well, I, I, I wanted I was to talk haunted. about that. Yeah, because you're telling this story that's rooted in so many of these issues of the Deep South. We're talking about racism, the massacres of both indigenous peoples, also of black people, white oppression. And while it's told through this fictional lens, I'm curious as to, as a writer, what responsibility do you think writers have to bring respect and awareness to that history while also, you know, just telling the story that they want to tell? Right. Yeah, I I really thought about that. Um, I think uh, you need three things. Uh, you need to to write about things that are maybe not 
familiar areas, especially for a white writer. Um, I think you need uh, respect, um, empathy, and accuracy. And the accuracy you can get to through research um, and through uh, interviews. In my case, living in a community and being an activist gave me awarenesses that maybe other people would not have. Um, the respect has to do with how you present um, dialect and stories, how you do not, I never use stories from real people unless there's uh, historical material that, that must be spoken. Um, and the empathy is, uh, is what every writer of fiction must have. And uh, that part comes very naturally to me. I can, I feel connection to people of all kinds, uh, and uh, um, that th it's it's easy for me to. I, I know this sounds a little strange, but fiction writers know what I'm talking about. We have a strange little um, element of our lives where we look and we see things the emotional lives of the world around us in ways that other people maybe could but don't pay attention to. Mm. So, yeah, so that empathy. I also have been mentored by um, older Black women as part of my work with Black history, uh, giving, giving talks and writing about Black history in my community. And I met many, many... Um, Native American people and people who uh, study indigenous history when I was researching my book about Virginia Dare, because that's about first contact and the Hatteras Indians and the uh, Croatoan and uh, many different tribal people who were here long ago that most people don't know much about at all. So I, I got to hear, and I think in stories, you know, a good story has entry through feeling. So we're, when you, you can tell a story through history or through recounting history in a vivid way, but a fiction story requires a deep access to the inner lives of people um, through point of view. And so that's what we must do. Uh, in this case of Miss Reba Jones, the Black and Tuscarora elder, who speaks her story. I made some decisions about point of view, wanting her to speak her story out loud and uh, in order for her beautiful voice to shine. And that way I was not appropriating her way of saying things. Um, she's uh, partly in close third person and partly in first person, but not me mediating her first person literally so much as um, me allowing her to speak mm. on the page out loud. So that was a really strange little technique that I used to have access to someone whose life is very different from mine, but who I felt had a story to tell in her own way. The natural world is another huge part of this novel, especially what you call the ghoulie pines and, of course, indigo field. Was this based on a real place that you have visited or 
well. Everyone wants to know that. Um, <laughs> the truth is, I moved to the South and fell in love. And when I married my husband, I was a newlywed, and we moved to his uh, family's old farm, uh, just mostly pastures and, and pine trees. And I I connected with this place. I, I had been a natural history writer and um, in Washington, D.C., and, and I... I was, I think what everybody who works in Washington, D.C. knows is you really work all the time and you don't really get to go outside. And it was mm. um, it was just a delight for me to be in nature 24-7. Um, and uh, also on the farm where I lived, there were whippoorwills, there were moonrise over pasture, there was a beautiful changing of the pasture and the vegetation through the course of the year, or the different kinds of, different times of year when uh, haying is done, and the different kinds of hay you get, different times of year, and uh, the land was strewn with indigenous artifacts that the family had kind of held on to for a century, and uh, the the trees um, were cut around me in several places. Older pine trees were cut, and I, uh, if you've ever been near a clear cut, it it has. If you're paying attention, it's a it's a terrible terrible moment. So I have a, a connection with trees. I that they, I can feel, I'm so happy that they're breathing because they're providing my oxygen and I try to thank them every day. So I think my life was just lifted up by being around all this, this beauty and surprise. You know, everywhere I, everywhere I went, there were these surprising things that I was learning about, about the land and, and the wildlife and the birds. So, um, I think it helped me thrive, and I wanted to do, you know, have gratitude and show gratitude for that. Uh, and I'm a poet, um, no longer, but once a poet, and so that kind of sensitivity and language that you must use as a poet to connect with the phenomena of the natural world, or kind of got folded in. I. I think so. It definitely shows up in, in phrases that I just found beautiful. I know you talked about moving from D.C. to a small town, which if you haven't lived in a small town, it's hard to explain just how different it is. Do you think you could have written this book without having that experience? Not a bit. No, the 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 small town, the community, the rural area, it's the muse that that taught me to write it. So, um, yeah, the small town life, boy, it's like it's like a web. It's like an ecosystem um, to know the people in your community who are your plumbers as somebody that you can drink beer with. You know, to know the farmer down the road as someone who knows the history of the land and when there was a flood to know uh, the shopkeeper as somebody who knows the history of all their customers. And in a very small town, when I first moved here, it seemed fairly isolated. It's changing a lot. But, you know, I would stand on the street corner 
at the courthouse circle with a friend who was a, a county attorney, and we would watch the traffic go by because all the traffic going to the beach just took over the town at that particular time. But the rest of the the rest of the week, there was uh, there were times of day when farmers came into town on Wednesdays and times when shops were closed for certain things and times when it was completely deserted, that everyone is important in a small town. Everyone in a rural community has essential value. And there's something very beautiful about that to me. You also wrote about, I think this was in a different interview that I read, that in a small town, especially when it comes to issues of race, that there is I think a different way of looking at that for many people. Right. History is personal in a small town and uh, relationships, historical relationships between families. Um, here's a family that my family helped, you know, gather crops with. And so you have a history of a relationship. Here's a family where there's a story told that they insulted us, you know, years ago. Um, or my uncle didn't get along with so-and-so. So all of the history becomes very personal. And, you know, because I didn't grow up here, I had this sort of family connection that was very new. I uh, observed those things as an outsider without having a stake. And I feel like I was able to look at history in a, with, a, with, a clear, with a clear eye and an open eye. Um, so uh, it, it was, uh, I, I didn't find out till later that my husband's family has stories about certain families in the community and, and uh, their relationships with them over the years. And people have stories to tell about each other. And sometimes they cross barriers of race and culture. And sometimes they make those barriers bigger, depending on personal history. Well, Marjorie, I want to say thank you so much for talking with me today. I loved this book so much, and I really hope it gets all the attention in the world. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you. Marjorie Hudson's new book, Indigo Field, is available now. Off the Page doesn't exist without the support of listeners just like you who become members. Thank you so much if you're already a supporting member of Off the Page. And if not, feel free to make a donation today. Go to WSKG.org and click on Donate. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sorakis. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs>